Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it's been over a week since I did my last podcast. And, you know, there's been a lot of economic news that has come out since my last podcast. And in fact, there's been so much of it that I don't even really think I want to cover it. Suffice it to say, it's almost all bad. Yet, despite the fact that we've had all this bad news about the U.S. economy, and despite the fact that the markets have been under pressure, you know, we're back down near the uh, these mini Black Monday lows. You know, the Dow is back down close to 16,000. The Nasdaq, 4,500. Right? The Dow is off 11.5-ish, 12%, same as the S&P. The S&P is down about 13.5%, or the Nasdaq, rather, down about 13.5% from its record high, which was, what, back in July. Uh, but we're solidly in correction mode. Of course, the pressure on international markets have, has been even greater. Yet despite that, or maybe because of that, the vast majority of economists, maybe 85, 90%, I'm not really sure, expect the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates by December. Now, I think the vast majority of those who are expecting a rate hike are expecting the Fed to wait until December, right? Not do it in October, which would really mean, you know, last minute, right? Because the Fed doesn't say they're going to raise rates in December, right? What they've been saying is that they anticipate raising rates before the end of the year. Now, they've been saying that pretty much all year. And, well, we're running out of time, so they'd really be cutting it you know, down to the wire 
if it turns out that by the end of the year meant December. But I don't know why all the economists are still convinced that the Fed is going to raise rates. Because if you look at the reasons that the Fed gave, now, of course, the reasons it gave may have nothing to do with the actual reasons that it had, but the reasons that it listed as the excuse for not raising rates were weakness in overseas markets and overseas economies, a lack of inflation as measured by the Fed's uh, favorite indexes, right? So maybe there isn't really a lack of inflation, but the way the Fed measures it, there is. And of course, the Fed believes that inflation is good and necessary for growth, even though it's not. But we know the Fed's stated opinion with respect to inflation. And the Fed has said also that they want to see more improvement in the labor markets. Apparently, the labor markets weren't strong enough in September to allow for a rate hike. Well, if the labor market is probably less strong or weaker than it was in September, the global markets are certainly under more pressure now than they were when the Fed didn't raise rates. There is no sign that inflation, the way the Fed measures it, is going to be any higher in December than it was in September. So if all of the concerns are still there in December, why would the Fed move? If it didn't move in September, why would it move in December? And the answer is it wouldn't. But everybody still believes that they will because Janet Yellen is still pretending. Janet Yellen is still saying we expect to raise rates by the end of the year. Why? Does Janet Yellen expect all these problems that she was so worried about in September to be gone by December? Does she really think these problems were going to be solved that quickly? And if she really thought they would be solved that quickly, why not just raise rates in September anyway? I mean, if the problems are no big deal, if they're going to go away so soon, why sweat it? Just raise rates. So none of it makes sense. Nobody wants to connect the obvious dots here. The irony couldn't be greater because, you know, when Janet Yellen and the Fed, when they didn't raise rates, blamed their failure to do so on the weakness in the global economy, but then refused to rule out raising rates in October or December, that may have been the worst thing for the markets because the Fed is saying the economy is really weak and we're going to kick it when it's down. Even though we think that there's all these problems, we still think we're going to raise interest rates. So initially, I thought the Fed was either going to do a a dovish hike or a hawkish hold, at least hawkish in the sense that they were going to continue to pretend that they were going to raise rates. When the Fed initially refused to raise rates, it seemed like a dovish hold, which you would think would be the best scenario for foreign currencies or gold, but... The perception of a dovish hold quickly became a hawkish hold when Janet Yellen spoke about her belief that rates would still be rising by the end of the year. But of course, the fact that everybody believes it means it can't happen because the markets are already pricing it in and they're exacerbating the very problems that supposedly led Janet Yellen not to move in September. You know, it's amazing to me that everybody is worried about how higher interest rates are going to affect the rest of the world, maybe the emerging markets, right? Oh, everybody knows, oh, yes, the emerging markets have a lot of debt. And if interest rates go up, that makes that debt harder to service. 
A lot of that debt is in U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is going to be more expensive to repay. And so everybody is worried about how higher interest rates will affect the global economy. Yet no one stops to consider how higher interest rates are going to affect the U.S. economy. Because we've got more debt than the rest of the world combined. We will really suffer from higher interest rates. But right now, interest rates are still at zero. So we're not suffering. The only countries that are suffering are the other countries because that's all about perception. See, everybody assumes that the U.S. can handle higher interest rates. And they assume that other countries can't. So the other countries are feeling the sting of higher interest rates. But America is not because interest rates have not actually risen. Now, if they did go up, then people would see that the U.S. can't handle it. But because the Fed keeps them at zero, everybody assumes that, the, that we can handle higher interest rates. And why do they assume that? Well, because the Fed says that they're going to raise rates. And after all, the Fed would not be saying they were going to raise rates if they didn't have confidence that the U.S. economy can handle it. Unless, of course, they're lying, which nobody wants to bother to consider the possibility that this is all a show. That the Fed is trying to talk up the economy, get people to have confidence in the U.S. economy by talking about how anxious she is to raise rates, knowing that people would come to the false conclusion that, well, the Fed wouldn't be saying this unless they knew the economy could handle higher rates, unless they knew it couldn't, yet wanted to send the opposite message, didn't want people to perceive the predicament. And again, if you haven't already seen my YouTube video, which I did post a couple days ago of my Jackson Hole uh, speech, it's about a 20-minute video, check that out because I really get into this topic in more detail on that on that video. But what I really wanted to discuss on today's podcast was two individuals who were in the news, Donald Trump and Carl Icahn. Donald Trump was on 60 Minutes over the weekend, and Carl Icahn released his own video, which was only about 14 minutes, called uh, Danger Ahead. And so I want to talk about both of these individuals who are now in the news uh, for these... Uh, appearances, whether it's on 60 Minutes or a self-produced video. First, I want to talk about Donald Trump. Now, I thought Donald Trump did an excellent job in his 60 Minutes interview. In fact, I think he hit the ball out of the park, not because I'm agreeing with everything that Donald Trump said. In fact, I disagree with most of it. But I really was impressed by the way he delivered that message. And I think that the typical voter is going to buy the bill of goods that Donald Trump so forcefully and eloquently sold during that very brief 60 Minutes interview. I mean, to me, that was like a commercial for Donald Trump. I mean, 60 Minutes teed it up, and Donald Trump hit it out of the park. I think he basically promised everything to everybody, right? He is going to cut taxes— for almost everybody, except the really rich hedge fund managers that everybody hates. But the middle class, everybody's going to get a big tax cut. He's going to repeal and replace Obamacare with something even better because he's still going to cover everybody. The government is still going to provide people with insurance. Now, I thought that's what Obamacare was supposed to do, but Donald Trump knows that nobody likes Obamacare, so he's going to replace it with something that does the same thing, only I guess we'll call it Trump care. Right. But he promised that he promised to save Social Security. Right. Oh, we don't have to cut Social Security. I'm going to save Social Security. So I'm going to save Social Security. I'm going to save, you know, uh, socialized medicine. I'm going to cut everybody's taxes. I'm going to grow the economy. I mean, he's going to do all this great stuff. And you know what? He sounds like he could pull it off to the average guy 
who doesn't really understand economics, this sounds plausible. He sounded very optimistic about what this country could be like if we only elected him president, right? It's lousy now, that we know. The current a group of career politicians have screwed this economy up. The average guy knows that. Donald Trump is successful. He has an image, an aura of success. Maybe people think, you know what? He succeeded in business. He's a rich guy. So maybe he can make us all rich. Just let's make him president because he's going to you know, negotiate better trade deals and he's going to grow this economy. Uh, and it's, it's okay if we uh, cut taxes. It's not going to increase the deficit because the economy is going to grow. All the millions of people who are not working are going to have jobs and they'll be paying taxes in this Donald Trump economy. Why? Because he's going to bring all the jobs back from China. He's going to bring all the jobs back from Mexico. How's he going to do that? Tariffs? Building walls? I don't know. But it doesn't matter. He can, all he has to do is say it. And he just says it in a way that people are going to believe it. Because who is going to argue against him? Who, I mean, who's going to be able to debate this? If this? He's got all these talking points down. He's not offending anybody. He's not, as far as people who are looking to get government checks, he's not identifying government programs that he's going to cut. No, he's going to get rid of the $50,000 hammers. I mean, everybody is in favor of getting rid of those expensive hammers and toilet seats. He's not talking about actually cutting any government programs where he might offend somebody who might benefit from those programs. He's not talking about laying off any government workers whose vote he might lose. He is appealing to everybody. He is the non-politician who is the best politician in this race. Right? He is promising everything to everybody in a way that people might actually believe it. You know, I, I, I think that he is going to go up in the polls rather substantially as a result of this brilliant performance on 60 Minutes. Now, of course, again, the stuff that he's saying, it's impossible. This country is in a lot of trouble. Donald Trump can't fix it by building walls and imposing tariffs. Now, yes, lowering taxes, getting rid of special interests, th that stuff is going to help rebuild the country if we do all the other right things that need to be done. But, you know, one of the key points that I think is going to resonate and get a lot of voters is when he focuses on the, the special interest, the hedge fund guys, because why does the government have high taxes? One of the reasons that the government has high income taxes is so they can basically blackmail people like the mafia looking for protection money. They vote for high income taxes and then they go to a business and they say, hey, we will give you a special tax break if you give me money for my campaign and I will exempt you from some of these high taxes. Right. So they create this weapon, this big club, this high marginal tax rate. And then they say to a constituent, hey, give me some money and I won't bash you on the head with this club. And so that's what happens. They shake everybody down for money. If you lower the taxes, you lower the rates and you get rid of the deductions, then the politicians don't have any power to buy votes and get support. That's why they're not in favor of it. But Donald Trump can hit these themes because he can say, look, I don't want any special interest money. So I can tax the hedge funds because I don't want their money. Right. I can lower taxes on everybody else and raise them on the hedge fund guys. I can lower the tax rates and I can get rid of the deductions because I don't need it. I don't need anybody's money. I'm spending my own money on this race. And you know why that didn't work for like Linda McMahon. Linda McMahon ran against me in the Senate in the primary and her money, even though she won the nomination in the general election, the idea that she was trying to buy the Senate seat worked against her. 
I don't think it's going to work against Donald Trump. He's running a much better uh, campaign as far as public perception. And I think the messenger is better. He's a better messenger than Linda McMahon was. And I don't think voters are going to hold it against him that he's spending his own money on this race. In fact, I think it's going to work for him, whereas with Linda McMahon, it worked against him. And remember, he's not going to have to finance the, the presidential race. He's going to get all kinds of money from the Republican Party if he's the nominee. He just has to finance his way through the primary. And it's not going to cost him that much money because he is getting so much free publicity from the networks and the media that want to cover him because people want to watch him. People are interested. He's the only candidate that people want to hear. And again, part of the reason for that is because things are so screwed up. He's all people have. It's like, you know, everything's a mess. It doesn't matter what the career uh, politicians say or what the pundits on TV say or uh, the Federal Reserve or Obama. The average guy who is drawn to Trump knows the economy is a mess, knows it's headed in the wrong direction, and he doesn't think anything is going to change if we elect a run-of-the-mill Democrat or Republican. And in fact, I'm sure the Republicans are extremely frustrated. And so he's like something different, something that they can hang on to, even if it's pie in the sky, even if it's not going to work, it's better than something you know is not going to work. Let's take a chance. How bad could it be? Can't be any worse, right? That's, that's kind of the mentality. And I think on the left, you've got the same thing going with, with Bernie Sanders. But also, I wanted to talk about Carl Icahn, because Carl Icahn is the guy who supposedly is going to be the Secretary of the Treasury if Donald Trump is the president. And you know what? I mean, he, he probably wouldn't be bad compared to some other clowns who have been Secretary of the Treasury. Carl Icahn, probably not bad. But I want to talk about Carl Icahn because he just came out with this new video, which I, I would encourage people to watch. It's called Danger Ahead. And, you know, the first part of it is really like, a commercial for Donald Trump. So that's more free publicity for Donald Trump in this Danger Ahead video. And he hits a lot of Donald Trump's talking points about carried interest, about uh, inversions, about high corporate taxes. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is good, but it's not the real root of the problem. It's the second half of the video that really should have been at the beginning, uh, which is the problems in the bubbles that Icon correctly perceives and more important than understanding there's a stock market bubble and a real estate bubble and an art bubble, he blames the Fed, correctly blames the Federal Reserve for supplying the air to inflate those bubbles. And he correctly points out that quantitative easing, 0% interest rates have created problems. They have not been a solution to our problems. They are causing our problems. And he went over what I've been discussing with manufactured corporate earnings and share buybacks and how companies haven't used their money to modernize their plant and equipment, to increase the productivity of their workers. They've just massaged their earnings numbers by levering up and buying back stock in a very unproductive manner, all thanks to the Federal Reserve, all really good stuff that I've been saying for years. And it's nice to see a guy like Carl Icahn come out and say it too, because he's a pretty mainstream guy. You know, as far as billionaires go, uh, you know, he's, you know, mainstream. And now he's coming to these conclusions. And, you know, he mentioned that he's been very worried about these problems for the last six months. And, of course, I've been worried about him for a lot longer than that. And I've been warning about him for a lot longer than that. But it's nice that he's finally figuring this out. 
right, that, that the Fed has created a huge problem. In fact, in his video, he uses an analogy that I've used. And I, I mean, I can't, I don't think I didn't make it up either. So I, you know, it's not like, you know, he's stealing it from me because I stole it from somebody. I don't know who. But he used the analogy of everybody having a party on a bus and the bus is going over the edge of a cliff and the bus is being pushed by Janet Yellen. But everybody on Wall Street is in this party bus having a great time and no one wants the party to end and no one bothers to notice that the, the bus is about to go off a cliff at the hands of, of Janet Yellen. So he knows this. And in fact, he accurately went back and blamed the financial crisis on the Fed, on the low interest rates policy from Alan Greenspan. And he's curious as to what the payback is going to be for uh, the even lower uh, interest rates of Bernanke and now uh, Janet Yellen. Now, one of the reasons he said he made the video, right, is he said that he uh, was sorry that nobody made a similar video in, in 2007, that nobody warned about the problems in 2007. And so he wanted to make sure and warn about them now. I'm like, hello, hey, you know, <laughs> Carl, hey, over here, right? I, I was warning about the problems in, in 2007. I was warning about them in 2006. I was warning about them in 2005. I was warning about them in 2004. I warned early because there was still time to do something about it. By 2007, it was too late to do anything. Just like Carl Icahn's warning is too little too late. Even if you believe what he's saying, there's nothing they can do about it now. right? Nothing the Fed can do about it now. I mean, it's, it's, it's over. right? It's too late to fix this problem. Now, yes, we can raise interest rates and let the financial crisis happen and let it happen worse than 2008. But nobody is going to do that. What I regret is I gave the warning that Carl Icahn is giving now. Only I, I sounded the alarm louder more often and earlier. But what I regret is not that I didn't do it, but that nobody cared. Nobody took me seriously. Worse, everybody laughed at me. That's what happened. And you know what? They're probably going to do the same thing about Carl Icahn. I'll just dismiss his warning. Oh, you know, well, they'll come up with all reasons that they, they should ignore him. Just like, they, just like they ignored me. Now, another point that he made, and I want to just correct him because I think he used the wrong analogy, but he compared 0% interest rates to medicine. He said, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has given us this medicine and we've been on this medicine and we really don't know what's going to happen until, you know, they take the medicine away, right? And then we could be, actually be a lot sicker now without this medicine. But it's not medicine. See, medicine has a positive connotation, right? Medicine is going to heal you. Medicine is a good thing. I'm sick. Give me some medicine. It'll make me better. The Fed has not been medicating the economy. It has been drugging the economy. It's been injecting it with moderate monetary heroin. See, that's bad. Everybody knows that, right? Yes, you can get high off of heroin. You can feel great because you took some heroin. But ultimately, there's problems there. In fact, if you want to talk about it as medicine, it's not really medicine. It's more of a painkiller or a Novocaine. You're sick. You got a cancer. And the doctor says, well, take some aspirin or let me give you some morphine so you don't feel the pain. Right. And now the cancer gets worse and worse. But, hey, you know, it's OK because you don't feel it until eventually you drop dead because the cancer killed you. That's what the Federal Reserve has been doing to the U.S. economy. And rather than, you know, calling it, oh, it, you know, it's medicine, it's not. But I understand his perspective. You know, to drive home this point further, I want to you know, remind people about the warnings that I was giving back then. Not 2007. I'm just coming out with a new video. It'll be out you know, the next day or two, maybe tomorrow. Uh, 2006 all over again. Because I want to talk about the housing market. Because the collapse in the housing market started in 07. It didn't start in 08. 
The subprime market imploded in 07, and the financial crisis ensued the following year. But I put together this montage of me warning about the housing bubble in particular in 2006. And I actually got this montage because it already existed. It's at the end of the Janet Yellen Exposed video. But that's a 40-minute video. And I, I think a lot of people may not have watched it till the very end. They might have watched the first 20, 25 minutes if they watched that much. And so they never made it to this montage. So I wanted to do the montage again. But the real catalyst was Scott Nations. Because when I was on with CNBC with Scott Nations, and Scott Nations was saying, but Peter... How could you be right and everybody else be wrong? I wanted to show another example to Scott Nations or anybody else exactly how a guy like me can be right and everybody else could be wrong. Or a guy like Carl Icahn. In this case, Carl Icahn is pretty right. I think he's actually sugarcoating it. I think it's a lot worse than he thinks. But you know what? He's right. At least he's figuring out that there's a problem. Maybe he figured it out late, but he figured it out. Most of the other people in the mainstream haven't figured it out at all. They're still in denial, just like they were in denial about the housing bubble in 2006 or 2007. And no matter what I said, no matter how much I tried to convince people, no matter how good the evidence that I showed was, no matter how compelling my case was. And of course, in hindsight, you could look back. Of course, of course, Schiff was right about that. That's exactly what was happening. But when I was saying it real time and it should have been obvious, it wasn't. And so a lot of the things that Carl Icahn is saying should be obvious, and they're not. And, you know, a lot of the problems that Donald Trump is pointing out are real problems. He doesn't have real solutions, but at least he knows what the problems are. Now, my hope would be if he actually got elected president, he would figure out the real solutions and abandon all the ones that he's using to get votes and would actually do what needs to be done to fix this economy. Because you know what? He just might do it. He just might do it. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthinmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthinmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth and Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. 
Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold videocast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.